You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Hey, everybody, check out the Break the Bell podcast, where we believe your voice is your most powerful weapon. For a weekly dose of our take on what's going on in the world mixed with a side of history. Find us wherever podcasts are found or on social media handle at Break the Bell Pod. And most importantly, never stop talking. Prepare yourself. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. It's a new year. And what does that mean? That means entirely new buzzwords. Deep state is out. Insurrection is in. MAGA is out. Somehow never Trump came back. Dogs are flying. Cats are swimming. It's uh, it's basically, you know, December 42nd, 2020, as far as I'm concerned. And already things have just basically been a continuation of the same. But with that said, we are beginning to look into the world post-Trump. We're beginning to look into a world where things might not necessarily go back to what our definition of normal is, especially if, if you're like me, if you're like many of the other listeners and you don't think that normal ever existed. Yeah, here we are. Parler may or may not be back full-time. I don't know. Fight the good fight, rest in power. We're recording this at the time of which they are still apparently trying to write a contract with Epic, uh, serving the service provider that hosts Gab and other sites that you don't usually bring up in polite company. Whether it's good or bad is not for me to decide, it's up for you to decide. But that brings up a whole new point. Everyone from the American Institute for Economic Research, the Heritage Foundation, and Cato have been throwing out this new phrase, the parallel economy. Does it sound as dark and shadowy as I think it sounds? Kind of is. It's this idea of conservatives and liberals and everyone else in between, all the fabulous furry freak brothers coming together and essentially opening up their own businesses, opening up their own entire industries to cater to people based purely off of ideological alignment. Some of you might think, well, this was something that should have been done earlier and others are thinking this is only going to make things so much worse. We're going to talk about all that and more with somebody that knows a thing or two about the economy. We've got Brad Palumbo. Brad is a Washington Examiner, columnist, and libertarian conservative journalist. He hosts the weekly Breaking Boundaries podcast, interviewing guests like Rand Paul and Glenn Greenwald. You can go ahead and check out his um, podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and I'll make it even easier for you. Right now, pause it, go to the show notes, click on the links in the mentioned in this episode section, and subscribe right now before you forget. See, I love you. I make it easier. And away we go. Brad, thank you for taking time to call in today. When you look at everything that's going on with deplatforming and people saying, make your own internet company, make your own banks, this seems to be an awkward time for a libertarian. You know, we believe in the ideas of free markets, but we also don't believe in being assholes to each other. Where, where, where should we be falling on this and how do things look going forward? Hey, man. And thanks again for having me on. I think you're totally right that it's a difficult time to be a libertarian, though I'm not so sure there was ever a super easy time to be one either. Uh, but it's hard because with being libertarians or, or, or free market conservatives, what we believe in is private property rights. And we believe in the ability of a free market to uh reach a much better outcome than anything directed by the government. But what's hard is that sometimes we have to acknowledge that people can do something that is their right without it being right. So for example, I think that Twitter has the right to ban President Trump from from its platform, right? It is a private platform. It's not bound by the First Amendment. So as far as we're talking about the law, that's fully within their rights. But at the same time, I can say, I think it's really bad for this country that they're doing that. I think it's really hypocritical that they're doing that, given that they allow leaders from the Iranian regime to spout propaganda and they allow the Chinese Communist Party to downplay genocide on Twitter. So I think it's hypocritical. I think it's bad for the country. Um, And I think it's morally wrong, a, a lot of what's going on right now with these tech companies. Um, but at the same time, that's not necessarily an unlibertarian position to take. 
Because what we have to do is avoid feeling like, oh, we're libertarians, so we just have to defend business. No, we don't. We don't have to defend them. We don't have to pretend that what they're doing is morally good. All we have to do is say, well, we're not going to support giving government control over it. Right. That's really the only line in the sand. So I, I've never felt any need to de- defend these people. In fact, I'd like to see uh, more competition and consumer pushback to these big giants. And that's part of the problem, because in certain sectors like tech, well, if the baker doesn't want to bake the wedding cake, it's not very difficult for a gay guy like me to find another baker. Right. There's thousands of them in the country. Everybody's got a dozen bakeries within driving distance from them. We don't all have a dozen Twitters or Facebooks. So it it does become more complicated for us to grapple with. Yeah, that's the I think that's the crux of the issue right now. And I think you brought it up in, in the best way possible. Just because something is lawful might not mean that it's moral. And depending on who is hearing this, what is moral can mean a whole bunch of different things. Um, when it comes to the, this parallel economy that we're seeing right now, I mean, it's really being led by uh, what, what I call the conservative pundit class. Basically, people that, and I'm not saying this is an insult, people that talk a lot about theory, but have never actually had to start a business. People that talk about jobs numbers, but have actually never had to balance, uh, you know, employee salaries and stuff like that. And I, 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 didn't, I didn't get mad. But I got a little bit frustrated when I saw Matt Schlapp from CPAC uh, basically say, you know, if I had the money, I would go ahead and invest it in a conservative social media company. And it's like, you know, you do know the people. And I don't know his, you know, his personal net worth. But I think if he wanted to go ahead and grab a whole bunch of conservatives uh, who are, you know, giving millions of dollars to politicians, that are giving millions of dollars to PACs and lobbyists, they can go ahead and and make this stuff. And, you know, Parler was not the first right of center platform. There was Minds.com. There was Gab. There was Codius. They all had in common, and I say this with love, was that they weren't that great. And people saw that and they stuck to Twitter and they stuck to Facebook. The number of people who were exclusively on these platforms were one or two percent. So now you have people screaming, make your own bank, make your own server farm, make your own everything. And that sounds great. But you've got a lot of people in the middle who have right of center ideologies and they're blue collar or they're middle class. And they're more worried about making sure they can send their kids to college versus going on these ideological wars and creating products and services and companies just to fill a need to own the libs. And that's where I think a lot of this is going. Because when you look at the history of conservative alternatives to big tech or big companies, the only successes I can really think of are L.L. Bean and Chick-fil-A. And depending on the day of the week, people tend to get mad at them too. Yeah, so I think the underlying cause of this is mob culture. Right. So it is one thing when people boycotts are not fundamentally a bad thing when they are targeted at an actual practice. So, for example, if a company uh, engages engages in racism towards its employees, I don't think there's anything wrong with boycotting that company. But that's very different from targeting companies because of their thought control, because of like. Uh, or or because of the positions they hold, right? That has nothing to do with their actual company, but just has what the owner's private beliefs are. So for example, that's why I never ever liked the the crusade against Chick-fil-A, right? Because Chick-fil-A has never been accused of discriminating against gay employees, doing anything homophobic in their company. It's all just about the personal lives and personal beliefs of its owners, And the thing about capitalism that is so wonderful is that money and the exchange of goods and services in a market, it allows you to trust strangers and it allows for mutually beneficial transactions between people who don't know each other and don't trust each other and don't have to because they can just do market exchange with commonly agreed upon rules and currency. But when you start to go down this path of canceling out people who uh, have the wrong, quote unquote, wrong think beliefs, right, from the market, it's really dangerous because it undermines the the very necessary kind of 
cooperative nature of a free market that makes it so efficient in the first place. We see something we see something similar with like the demands that financial service companies like American Express stop allowing people to purchase guns or these kinds of things where it's like we've lost something in our society where we expected things to be neutral and then we criticize the people instead of the platform. And I don't know what to do about that, but it is a serious, serious kind of intellectual disease and rot now that we expect companies to police people's thoughts and behaviors rather than engaging with them with the people directly. You, you know, I, I have a pretty, I, I don't want to say it's, it, it's a pretty vague opinion of like Colin Kaepernick and stuff like this, but I, I spoke with a uh, Christian stone from, from a uh, 6048 sports a few weeks ago. And we were talking about the rise of the activist athlete, you know, your uh, Megan R- R- Rapino or however the hell you pronounce her name, Colin Kaepernick, the, the woke athletes and everything else. And, and when I look at companies like Nike, who might release statements on stuff like, the Black Lives Matter movement and stuff. I, I've always been in the mindset of, you know, it, it doesn't really affect me as long as they're not, you know, price gouging the products. I like Nike products. I think Nike products are amazing. Uh, I, I tell the story pretty often, but I was working on a campaign in 2018. It was in a Republican primary and somebody came up to me as I was passing out leaflets outside of a polling place. And they, they asked, who are you working for? And I said, this is who I'm working for. And he said, I'm not going to vote for your guy because you're wearing a Nike jacket and Nike hates America. And he walked away. And whether he was serious or not, like I, I still, like I think about that pretty often because I'm thinking now, now we're at the point where everything we do is a political statement. And, you know, I, I, I criticize conservatives for this enough, but they engage in cancel culture. They engage in identity politics, not as much as the left does, but they're just as guilty of it. And he based his entire opinion of me and the person I was working for, because I didn't go on YouTube and set my hundreds of dollars of Nike apparel on fire. And, and yeah. that's the thing that worries me more about everything else, because it used to be we got mad at the companies. Now everything the consumer does of their money is almost like a political declaration. Right. I think that's a seriously messed up approach. And it's the same. It's honestly an extension of the same approach that says, oh, people said this on this platform and I hate what they said. So that platform should be shut down. Right. It's when you're transferring the responsibility for ideological for ideas or stances or beliefs onto other people almost by like just guilt of association or of inter it's so it's not just it's almost like beyond cancel culture, right? Cancel culture targets individuals. This is like cancel culture for cancel for the, anyone who associates with something that you don't like. So it's like not only is Um, some controversial person now radioactive. It's like, if you interact with them, you are too. And I just wish we could get back to the point where people would do what you're doing. Like, do I, if when I'm looking on Amazon, right. And I'm looking to buy something, I'm looking at the price. I'm looking at the quality. I'm looking at the consumer reviews. I'm not looking at, well, who owns this company and do they vote for Democrats or Republicans? I mean, that's not, sustainable unless we want to have, because the natural, I mean, it's going to start with kind of things that are naturally political, right? You will have a social media company. You already have media totally divided, right? You have Democrat newspapers and Republican newspapers, pretty much. If we're being honest, you have Democrat television channels and Republican television channels. That's where it starts. But I mean, eventually we're at the point where like you'll get, if you're a conservative and you're at a restaurant, um, they might ask you to leave. They might say, you work for the Trump administration, you're unwelcome here. And that's another thing where, listen, that is their property. That is their legal right to do that. I'm not saying it shouldn't be because ultimately I believe in private property, but I think that mindset is morally destructive. I think it really undermines kind of the society that we want to live in. No one did that 30 years ago, 20 years ago, right? Because unless we want to end up somewhere where we have Republican movie theaters uh, and <laughs> Republican restaurants and GOP Taco Bells, I mean, 
what the heck? We can't stay together as a society like that. That's not sustainable. So people, they seem to not realize that when they're imposing this on other people, it's going to come back and hit you next. GOP Taco Bell sounds like it only sells Doritos Locos Tacos. Um, <laughs> it, it, uh, it, it's, it, it's getting to that point now. And when I was, when I was at parlor, um, I, I wanted to be part of a company that was actually trying to do what it was setting out to do, which was to provide a equal level playing ground where everyone is equal under the terms of service. And we based our ideology off of the concept of free speech and individual expression, those classical liberal values. And I believe that the, the company, you know, stood for that and still stands for that, whatever state they are in now, as of the time this episode comes out. But I mean, be, be honest with me, Brad, it was not always the place where you saw the most ideologically diverse conversations. And it wasn't because the people weren't open to it. It's because you saw a large number of people there because they felt like Twitter hated them. Yeah. So this is the problem with social media as a market specifically. In economics, there's something known as a network externality. So for listeners who don't know, think about it like this. Okay. Pretend I'm stupid because I'm a pretty C average person. So break it down. So imagine the invention of the telephone. For the first person who purchased a telephone, it was useless because the value of a telephone is based on other people having telephones, right? So there's a network externality to it that for the first thousand people who got the first telephones, those telephones were kind of useless because there's no one else to call. In the same way, Facebook, for the first million people that signed up, was kind of useless because there was hardly anything on Facebook, hardly anyone they knew on Facebook. And then when you have 100 million people on Facebook or whatever the heck the number is, that is a built-in value just from people being on it that makes it extremely hard to compete with the social media incumbent. It's not a total preemptive, it's impossible to compete with them, but it makes it more difficult because... I'm sure you saw this at Parler. It's hard to get people to make a switch because to make a switch, they have to leave somewhere where tons of other people are on, which is how a network derives its value and go to somewhere where people aren't on yet. Uh, And so it makes it an uphill climb and it has the unfortunate reality. And we saw this really bad with Gab and to some extent with Parler too. The people that make the switch at first are the people closest to the fringe Uh, because they're the ones least satisfied with the status quo or being silenced the most and so on. But then that kind of makes it an unhospitable place at first uh, for other people to come over. So it's really kind of a a head-scratching problem. What do you do about this? How do you stop this? And I have a colleague who has an interesting idea because we really do believe in the power of markets to overcome, even when there are these difficulties that I've just described. I mean, people were so adamant that Internet Explorer was a monopoly. It was installed on every computer. It had crazy high market share. And now, does anybody use that? No, they actually just announced that Microsoft Edge, the uh, shoot-off of what was once Internet Explorer, they're going to shut it down, Microsoft. They're going to stop supporting it soon because it's failed so miserably against Safari and Chrome and Firefox. And same thing with MySpace. Everyone was like, oh, well, MySpace has such a network. No one's ever going to be able to dislodge it. Uh, And that's true to some extent. The network effect is real. But look what happened. No one uses it anymore. Even as, as dominant as these current giants are, we still just saw TikTok come up from nothing and get a billion users. So it still can be done. The market still can provide alternatives. What you have to shift is the consumer's And then like you mentioned with Matt Schlapp, uh, no one, I mean, it would be extremely difficult for a college kid in their garage to start the competitor. I think, and I've had a colleague suggest this actually, what we need is like Elon Musk and Peter Thiel or like some very wealthy tech people who are right of center to, to really take this challenge on and pour millions in capital into it. Because 
that's, I think, the only way you can seriously compete with these giants is if you start with a huge investment and you start with people who really know what they're doing. It's going to be pretty hard if you take the David V. Goliath approach to have some small startups take them on. I think you got to get some people at the top of this industry uh, who know the status quo is broken and are willing to put some skin in the game to try to change it. Yeah, I, I think... Uh... <sighs> And, and it goes back to like, you know, the whole politics is downstream and culture thing. But like Sheldon Adelson, for example, before he died, I think the man had given probably more to Republican candidates short of maybe like Charles and David Koch. Like he was pretty, pretty high up there. And what he's doing is he's constantly giving to Republican candidates who may or may not lose. I think he gave more money to like Mitch McConnell and Ted Cruz than any other person. And it's like that, that is where you fight the battle when it's already been determined because ultimately by the time, you know, these elected officials get to Congress or they get to the Senate, uh, people like to think that legislation is more unpredictable than it really is, but, but it's really not because what happens before voters get to the voting booth is decided entirely by outside factors. Where are they socially? Where are they culturally? Where are they economically? All that stuff ultimately creates the giant mosaic that we see in Congress. In this case, right now we have Democrats controlling the Senate and the Democrats controlling the house. Things are going to be pretty stale for a little while because they're all trying to divvy up who gets the best positions and everything else. Nothing will really happen in terms of my view, because nothing really happened when Republicans had everything. I mean, Trump didn't even get most of his people confirmed until 2018. So almost a year and a half, two years in, not, nothing really happened. So that that's not what really stresses me. What, what bothered me the most about people, and I'm trying to do these mental gymnastics to avoid breaking my NDA, what, what I can say was that by the time somebody wanted to come to parlor and I'm talking like your big VIP high profile figures, celebrities, journalists, um, heads of state politicians, that type of stuff. They, they already knew why they were coming here. And it was primarily because, you know, when parlor first came out in 2018, it was with that big conservative surge you saw from people that were primarily kicked off of Twitter. And that was, that was the reputation. It still basically is the reputation. You go to the parlor and get kicked off of Twitter. But what we really tried to do is we tried to really emphasize, it's like, you can't say that we're this right of center company just because that's our consumer base. We have a lot of people that do that. We have a lot of people that advocate for it, but that is not us. And if let's say you had a million liberals join overnight, it's not like we were still going to prioritize the conservatives and their ability to be heard versus the liberals. All we do is we provided the platform and the tools and the capability for people to speak and promote their content. Because at the end of the day, the, the consumers, the parlor members, regardless of who they are, what they are, they created the parlor experience. And no matter how often we tried to market ourselves as being that fair and balanced company, um, I, I, don't, I don't think they were ever given a shot. It, it made my job extremely difficult. And, uh, you know, by, by, by the time that I had left, you know, we had probably thousands of uh, gold-badged Republican politicians, but the only one who was an elected Democrat was Tulsi Gabbard, but she was also leaving at that point. So she didn't have as much skin in the game in terms of still trying to appeal to a very progressive base. She could kind of do whatever she wanted, which it was great to have her, but here you had another example. People just look at face value. It's, it's, It's one to one to several million. And it's those situations where it's like the, the media, the, the media basically painted our narrative for us. And because of that, no matter how much time and effort and money we put into trying to frame ourselves as who we were, we're always just going to be the conservative company. Yeah, and so uh, it, it just, it, it, it was not, it was not fun. And it's not, uh, it's not a good thing for you guys or for the users. Because one thing that's really interesting that I've discovered and I've read about is there's in academic research, there's something documented called the law of group polarization. Basically, anytime you have a group of people together that are like-minded, 
they will become more extreme, bouncing off of themselves, right? So if a bunch of people who support, and uh, David French actually has a new book out, Divided We Fall, that talks a lot about this. I just interviewed him on my podcast. But anyway, the gist of it is this. If you have a group of gun rights supporters who get together for a meeting and they talk about it, they're all going to leave there more pro-gun rights, right? They're not going to become less. Same way if you have a meeting of gun controllers, they're going to become more fervent in their pro-gun control extreme views. If you have a group that has mixed views, people might leave with more nuanced or moderate or reasoned positions. Uh, But when it's just echo chambers, people become more extreme. And so the sad reality of social media censorship is that Banning President Trump from Twitter and Facebook is not going to change the fact that millions of people voted for him and want to hear what he has to say. What it's going to do is create a new right-wing silo, wherever it is. Maybe it's Parler, maybe it's Gab, maybe it's uh, some other website that we don't know about yet. Maybe it's Newsmax TV. But either way, it's going to become an even more echo chamber environment, right? At least on Twitter, Trump Anytime you look at a Trump tweet, the replies are full of counter arguments, of fact checks, right? There's back and forth. It could be kind of an echo chamber sometimes, but at least on Twitter, there was both sides represented. My biggest fear with all this censorship is that it's going to just push both sides more into their like-minded cocoons, and they're just going to become more extreme, more out of touch, and and become even pushed more to the fringe and lose even more touch with... uh, the other side and what they actually believe. And that's what's happening when we divide up into two separate Americas. Tell, tell me your, your opinion on this, because I, I, I stopped uh, being a reporter, uh, being a journalist in mid 2019. So, you know, I, I've got, I've got a few years between me now and then. So when I talk to a lot of my colleagues and friends who are still journalists, they tell me that when they actually, in in the rare cases, they actually get to meet somebody that follows them on Twitter who might have, you know, not even a positive nor negative opinion of them. They'll say who you are in your tweets is entirely different than who you are in your articles. And that That, is interesting. Yeah. That, that is one of those things where it's like, I, I have met some people that have said similar things to me. Like I, I read your Twitter or I read your Facebook posts and you sound like an asshole. And then I'll actually listen to you in a podcast or read a book or read an article. And you almost seem like an entirely different person because you have the opportunity to actually engage in long form conversation and you're not limited to a character count. I, I, I don't, I don't hate Jack Dorsey. I don't even hate Mark Zuckerberg. When I when I got involved in social media, it wasn't because of hatred. It was not even because of just being, you know, a pure social experiment. I just thought that the business model wasn't great and that, you know, despite that Jack Dorsey might have an ideology or opinions on things that are completely different to what I have, you know, he can only be responsible for so much of what the community itself does. And I I feel that when it comes to Facebook and Twitter, I still don't think that they're going to be around in the same way they are now, 10 years from now. Like they might still exist. People don't realize this. MySpace is still around. If you want to go set up a MySpace account, which I know a few people did, you can actually still go do it. The thing is, though, we used to wonder if MySpace was going to be this giant social media monopoly, and now MySpace is the butt of every social media joke. Um, you know, who, who do you think holds more responsibility for all these negative opinions we have about social media? Is it the company or the consumers? Because the more I've I've taken a step back to look at, it, especially the last month and a half since I, I left and now I'm really just an outside observer, you know, it's like, it's like elections. You could say you hate the politicians and stuff, but there's a reason why they've been there. Some of them have been there for like 30, 40 years. It's because they keep getting elected back. Yeah. Um, to some extent, the problems that we have with media as in journalism and also within social media is demand driven. It's on the consumer side. So it's like, well, why is it that so much of our media media is clickbait trash or hyperpartisan alarmism? Well, it's because we as consumers 
vote with our clicks and we click on it. And then that gives them an incentive to produce more of what is being demanded and consumed. So it was frustrating to me as a journalist that sometimes my most well-reasoned and nuanced pieces would not get that much traffic. They'd get a couple thousand page views. Then I'd do some 400-word hot take shredding in something AOC tweeted, and I'd get 60,000 page views and a Fox News hit out of it, right? So the incentive structures in media, and the same thing is totally true on social media, right? The cheap one-line tweets, RT, if you agree, liberals hate the idea that there are <laughs> other ideas, right? The same kind of cheap uh, remarks, those unfortunately get all the engagement and help you grow your follower count. Whereas nuanced or reasoned thinking often doesn't. Sometimes it does, but that's not the cheapest way to a lot of followers is to post hyperpartisan trash, uh, and so you could look at that and blame social media. You could look at that and blame the people who are writing and saying these things. And to some extent, those things do deserve blame. But in a broader sense, the real demand is the, the, the core of the problem there. It's like, well, why is it that Charlie Kirk has risen to Twitter fame by being an overglorified troll, right? And gotten hundreds of thousands of followers and tens of thousands of likes the reason he keeps doing that is because that's what people reward him for doing. So to some extent, the blame is on the millions of users who give their likes to horrible, cheap content. I've, uh, I've got a story for you. And, and this, is one of, this is one of the moments where I really began to, to look at social media, not as this thing that is making everyone angrier or making everything worse, but is really showing people for, for who they are. It's like, I, I think Joe Rogan says that he hates social media because it appeals to like the lizard brain side of people. It's like, this is where you just start cursing and screaming at people. It's like, fuck you. Q knows the truth. Sheeple, what the hell? And it's just th these people who you see in the comments online, they, they might totally act a different way in real life. Uh, wh when I was the social media coordinator at the Washington Times, what I would do for the uh, uh, Washington Times opinion page was that is where I would put out Twitter polls. Now, for anyone that has you know, uh, finished first grade, you know that Twitter polls and most online polls are the least accurate thing you will ever, ever see. So if I'm, if I'm surprising anybody now, I'm sorry to be the one to burst your bubble about this. But when the last Twitter poll you saw before the election said that President Trump had 99% probability of winning the election, you thought that was, that was what you needed to see. It's, it's not. So what I would do was I would craft polls based off the questions that were prompted by the op-eds that were published. So if we were doing something on China policy, I would ask a question that would be like, do you think we need to add more tariffs to our trade policy of China? Yes or no? What it does is it prompts people because everyone wants to give an opinion. Everyone thinks that their opinion matters more than anyone else's opinion. So what you do is you frame the question, you post the link there, you, you get the poll questions out, and then you put it out for the world. And depending on the number of people that see it, they're going to go ahead and start retweeting it. And then they're going to be like, look, we're winning the poll or look, we're losing the poll. Vote now. Because by law of averages, if a million people end up seeing that tweet, I'm probably going to get a quarter to maybe 45% of them actually clicking on the op-ed link itself. That is, you know, poll-based clickbait because it's not that the op-ed was that, it's that I had to frame the poll in the tweet in order to incentivize people to click the op-ed. And what shocked me was at one point, I put out a tweet that had a pretty egregious typo in it. And it had already been retweeted probably three, four thousand times. And it was it was another election based piece. Who do you think will win Trump or Biden? So I think I misspelled Biden with with a B. So it was Biden. And I saw that and I was horrified. It was been up for five minutes. It's going super viral. People are going to attack me. They're going to attack the Times. I'm thinking, shit, I got to fix this. I take down the tweet. What do I get? I get MAGA mom twenty twenty something in her handle. She starts messaging the page. She's got 300,000 followers. And for the record, I don't know. I don't remember where her handle was. It was something stupid like that. She's like, uh, excuse me, Washington post, because she doesn't read. Um, you took down that, that, that tweet. We were winning. You're suppressing the people. 
I'm going to tell everybody to boycott you and to send angry letters to the editor and all this other shit. So I actually messaged back, which I have usually we were told never respond to stuff like that. But in a case like this, it's like it's it's already been seen by a lot of people. I got to respond. So I just basically said, listen, there was a typo. I'll put it up. And she was like, okay, well, when you do that, can you send it to me? So I said, sure. So I put it up. I fixed the typo. You know, this is like at 1 a.m. I send it to her. And what ends up happening? She's like, look, I got the fake news to concede. They put the poll back up. Show them what you got. So it ends up going super viral again. Donald Trump has like 99% of the vote. I'm getting thousands of clicks. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, I also want to say thank you for sharing it and promoting it blah, blah, blah. Have a nice day. Then she responds to me. Thank you. You know, things are so rough for our, for us Trumpers. I feel like a Jew in the Holocaust. And I read that and I'm like, you've got to be shitting me. She did not just say that. And I stopped responding after that. And it got to the point where it's like, oh my God, people here have no room for context or nuance at all. Everything is just gut reactions and dumbass mistakes on a regular basis, people tweeting things, people sharing things, people acting in ways that if they actually evaluated it, they, they would be horrified by their own actions. I, 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 have, I have less trust in the consumer complaining about social media than I do the actual social media companies in most of these situations. I can't say I blame you. I mean, I, <laughs> working as a journalist, I have... Less and less faith uh, in consumers. I mean, I think most people are generally good. I think most people are not extreme, but I think most people just have, they have defaulted to looking for stuff that confirms their prior beliefs, engaging with things that make them feel validated and rejecting things that make them question themselves or question their prior conceptions or notions And I don't really know how we get out of that kind of a situation, but it's not a good place to be for a country or for a body politic or for voters and and anyone, whether it's Twitter or whether it's at the ballot box. There, There really needs to be a sea change here because the way things are pulling apart right now, it just can't continue. Since you started on this career journey that you've been on, has your opinion of journalism and media itself gotten better or worse over time? So that's a tougher question than you would think. Um, My opinion of journalism has become much better informed. And as it has become more informed, it has definitely declined. (laughs) (laughs) I will say that much, but I've also, I guess I've learned a couple things, which is, I really have stopped for the most part. I mean, there's some exceptions, right? But stop judging publications and starting. Ju- I've started judging individuals, right? Because even really biased institutions or really ideological or low-level institutions have some great people that work there or some intelligent and honest people who work there. So one thing that I've started to do is rather, I don't say, oh, the New York Times is all fake news. There's some people there. They have this columnist, Charles Blow, Uh, who are genuinely, I think, horrific, horrible writers, deeply unserious people. But then they have other columnists that I I think are significantly better and worth reading. Uh, They have some reporters that are worth reading, even though some of their news coverage is horrible and totally biased. So I guess my, my view of the journalism industry has become more nuanced, right? There are some people at the Wall Street Journal who I think are excellent. There are some people at the Wall Street Journal who I think are not. Uh, There's some people on Fox News who I think are great. And there are some people on Fox News that I think are total bonehead idiots. Uh, So that's the one thing I would encourage people is to, this is kind of actually what we're seeing with the Substack revolution, right? People who don't know, there's a lot of independent writers that have thousands and tens of thousands of followers who just want to follow them, who subscribe to them on Substack and get an email newsletter directly from them. I think the future, and this is what you see with people like Ben Shapiro or left-wing YouTubers, right, is that you have to establish yourself as a voice that people can trust, and then they'll just follow you. One thing that is really interesting to me is watching the importance that people assign to networks and publications decline among consumers. So it's not like 
fewer and fewer people are like, yeah, I read the New York Times. And more people are like, yeah, no, I read this columnist. Or like, yeah, I read the Daily Wire. No, I follow Ben Shapiro, right? It's like there's very much a, a narrowing in on individuals that, that you can trust and have built a brand that you find credible. And I think that's actually a good thing. The only downside is that it's sometimes not very judiciously done in terms of who those individuals are. I mean, that's why you have some really unserious and really uh, kind of corrosive voices on the discourse and that, are, that have these massive followings. But I think the model itself is full of promise. Yeah, I had, a, I had Ken LaCourt on a couple of weeks ago. He, he was the former editor of foxnews.com. He was a Roger Ailes protege. And we were talking about Substack. I like Substack. It, it, you know, I, I think that it's good for both long form pieces. And I also just think it's a good newsletter platform. I, I do some blogs there, but you primarily use it as a tool of self-promotion. And uh, folks, if you're not subscribed, you can go ahead and subscribe in the show notes. But, um, you know, like, like Glenn Greenwald, for example, um, I, I've been a fan of his for a while. Um, I feel like he's honest and doesn't hate half the country. And I think that's a very, that's a very low bar to, to have to exceed at this point. It's like, are you honest and do you genuinely hate people that you've never met before? And my, my only problem with him going independent is in doing his own thing. It's like, while there are many criticisms of the current state of media, the one thing that I think is still really important is the editor-journalist relationship. And I think Chris Spangle went ahead and sent in a tweet a few weeks ago in his Substack newsletter, basically saying, you know, it's good that Glenn has the opportunity to do this and that he can still make money off of it and that now he's unrestrained from people trying to keep him down. But at the same time, it's like if there ever was kind of a sounding board or somebody say, you know, maybe you need to rethink this or maybe you're going a bit too far on that or maybe you need to correct this. Now he can just do whatever he wants. And that's not always a good thing because I, I will, you know, uh, my, my favorite editors were not the people that loved everything I wrote. They were the people that rejected half my shit and told me to go back and do more research. And even when they disagreed with my opinion on a column or something, it wasn't because they just didn't like my stance. It's because they were like, you're not arguing it the way it should be done. Or have you considered mm -hmm. looking at this resource that that editor journalist relationship I think is one of the things that goes missing when a lot of these journalists go independent. I agree. I actually think that's pretty important. So that's definitely a downside. The problem is that that, that is a very valid critique when editors are good. Uh, and I've had some good editors over the years. I bet it sounds like you have too. But the problem is a lot of editors, especially in mainstream media, they're no longer editing for those sorts of things, but rather they've been infected with kind of a, a woke worldview where they're they're almost enforcing like sensitivity readings. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you have to look at like the New York Times as an example. Uh, the New York Times is supposed to be the the paper of record in America, and they fired their op ed editor. Oh, what he, was her name? Well, was so it he or she. It was his name is Michael Bennett, uh, I believe. Oh, that feels he, like a million years ago. That was only like <laughs> seven months ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But so all he did was publish an op-ed by U.S. Senator Tom Cotton, a Republican, saying that the National Guard should be brought in to squash violent riots uh, happening in cities under uh, BLM protests that had turned violent in some cases. And now I'm not sure I necessarily agreed with him. Um, maybe you did it. Maybe you did. I mean, it's a very mainstream person arguing a very mainstream belief. And these editors and journalists at the New York Times all publicly claimed that the decision to run this op-ed made black, black employees physically unsafe. So when you have that kind of mentality, right, the censorious urge that views as ideas they don't like as violence, when those are the kind of people who are editing uh, and who are running these mainstream media institutions, because this ideology started on the campus, the college campuses across the country, and it quickly spread to corporate America, to major newsrooms, and now it's all over the place. 
when those are the editors, I think that editors can be uh, much more of a disservice to the public discourse and to journalism than they can be improving it. That is a, uh, th- that is scary. And, you know, I, I, I think that a lot of reporters now want to be commentators and a lot of commentators pretend to be reporters. And that's, that's like one problem. It's like, you can go from being a a reporter to being a commentator, but you can never go back to being a reporter. And it's like, if you were a commentator and you want to try and be a reporter, it's just never going to happen. I mean, be honest about it. Just be open about your biases. Like I do journalism, but I do opinion journalism and I'm very clear about that. And I wish more people would just admit that that's what they're doing. Like the biggest Sorry, my dog made that noise. You, you might <laughs> so want to edit that out. Um, <laughs> my, so my biggest problem with journalism these days is when people pretend to be objective, whether it's like Brian Stelter or like Don Lemon on CNN, they literally claim to be journalists. And then they are out there saying anyone, Don Lemon just, just I think last week, saying anyone who voted for Trump is the same as a white supremacist and a Nazi, the same as the people that attacked the Capitol. Right. So it's like they're so clearly like left wing opinion hosts. And that's fine, I guess. I suppose there's a demand for that, but they shouldn't masquerade as objective media and a so called unbiased journalist because it's just totally untrue. And then it makes people distrust the entire media. Yeah. Like my favorite, uh, you know, opinion journalist is probably Charlie LaDuff. He was a, he was a New York times, uh, Pulitzer prize winning journalist. He was at Fox news. He did a show for about three years called the Americans. And now he, he's a, you know, he, he, I mean, he was at the Detroit news. He was at the LA times. Now he's at deadline Detroit. And I mean, he's, he's bit, he, he's what I would call, he, he's a very socially liberal economic populist, and what, what I like about him is that he goes and he he looks at a lot of stories from the perspective of America's blue collar class. And he is, you know, it's one reason why I, I get a little bit peeved when I hear ta- uh, Tucker Carlson talking about like the plight of truckers and stuff like this. And he's standing up for a little guy. It's like, dude, you're with the Swanson family. You're, you're, you grew up in Georgetown. We're not going to have the same view on it. And I don't, and I don't dislike him for it. It's just like, you know, you, you haven't really done that in a while, especially when you were at CNN, you didn't go out and report stories. You were always the commentator going back to when he was at the weekly standard, whereas somebody like a Charlie O'Duff, for example, you know, he's got his opinions, but he's willing to go out and go pick grapes with Mexican migrant workers. He's willing to actually go into Mexico and see what it's like to break into the country. He, he's willing to go golf throughout the heart of Detroit and see how many buildings full of heroin needles he finds before he can do, you know, the equivalent of like 18 holes or something like that. Like it's that level of, he actually puts in the work that I I feel a lot of people don't, but uh, don't, don't do anymore. But I I am curious, like where, where, where do you look for your news during the day? Where do you kind of start and where do you kind of go to for some of your sources when you're working on pieces? Yeah, so that's interesting. So because my focus is on economics, um, I go to Wall Street Journal is probably my single biggest source. They're an interesting one because their news side is very much center left. So their news coverage of economic issues has a, a strong center left bias these days. But their editorial board is still pretty very old school conservative and very right wing and kind of the Reaganism uh, fusionist worldview. So I can get, just from reading that one publication, you do get two different perspectives, interestingly enough. Uh, I also read a lot of like business economic sources like foxbusiness.com, CNBC. Uh, and then I'm also, I mean, just looking at my bookmarks bar, I have everything from the Washington Examiner and National Review to the New York Times and Washington Post. I really think that the most important thing is not so much which one specifically you read as much as you make sure that um, as much as you make sure that that it's a breadth of of ideological diversity, because there is what unfortunately the reality is there's no such thing as unbiased news anymore. I'm not sure there ever was. So what you have to do is make sure that you're not just consuming one kind of echo chamber of media. You have to be actively seeking out different perspectives. And it's not that 
most news sources are not false, right? It's not that I actually don't think like fake news is a very common thing. It's more so a matter of even just agenda setting. It's like, what stories do they choose to cover? What perspectives do they choose to privilege within those stories? And I think you just, you could get the same exact issue and have two opposite headlines from a right-wing source and a left-wing source. Uh, And that's just, you're going to have to read both to get the full story. And on the flip side, there are stories that if you just read conservative media, you won't even hear about and vice versa. If you just read mainstream media, you wouldn't have even heard uh, about many of the, the riots and violence that happened over the summer, right? A lot of it was maybe just one story, page D17 of the New York Times, right? Whereas there were thousands of buildings destroyed in, in Minneapolis. Um, so I think that's the number one thing I would recommend for people is to just read widely and across the spectrum. You make sure your podcast lineup, I'm a big podcast guy, as you might've guessed, make sure you have, um, a lot of, of course you have breaking boundaries with Brad Palumbo, you know, the, the best looking host in the business. Of course, Get the you plugs have in that. now. go ahead. <laughs> but, uh, you should also try to make sure you have some left wing and left of center and right of center and libertarian and conservative ones in the mix too. If you're a podcast person, make sure it's not just all people who espouse your worldview. Absolutely. Brad, we are, uh, we're running up on time. We, I've had, you know, I've really enjoyed this conversation. We covered a lot of things, but ultimately folks, like as cheesy as it sounds, you are the power, you have the ability to make these changes and you have to really assess, you know, where, where these companies and where these outside forces begin and where your input and your activity ends, because it's an ebb and flow situation. These, these companies only exist because we, we strengthen them. And if you don't like Amazon, Stop shopping at Amazon. If you like something, you're going to have to put forward the ability to do it. But it's also understanding, you know, who who is really the, the biggest perpetrator. Because when it comes to social media, and I'm telling you, somebody that worked in in the press and for a social media company, and now does digital consulting for small businesses, it's way more complicated. And I'm not going, you know, I think I'll steal Brad's response. It's not that I really hate it more. It's just that I now know more, and my opinion isn't as great as it once was. But uh, Brad, I've had a great time. If people want to catch up with you and everything, which I will include in the show notes, but for those listening right now, how could they do so? Yeah, follow me on Twitter, Brad underscore Palumbo, P-O-L-U-M-B-O. And then just go to the show notes, subscribe to the podcast, really. That's the number one thing uh, where people can join me for our conversations if they liked what we had to say today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks. Hey, folks, it costs you nothing, but it it means everything to me. A five-star rating interview on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher helps us get in those trending top charts for a category, but also lets people know that we're having great, insightful conversations here. And while you're at it, share it with a friend, a lover, an enemy, a family member, homeless person on the street. Just share it. Get these conversations out if you're having a good time and you're benefiting from them. As always, you can follow me across Al Gore's amazing internet, across social media at HeyRemso, H-E-Y, R-E-M-S-O. And I'll talk to you later in the week. As always, you're listening to On the Run. I'm Ramsey W. Martinez. I'll talk to you later in the week. Be safe. Be good. Good night. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Like the Chris Spangle Show, Liberty Explained, The Brian Nichols Show, The Boss Hog of Liberty, Freedom Strips with Keaton Tucker, On the Run with Rimzo Martinez, Gingerarchy with Trisha Stewart Mann, Upward Libertarian Activism, and now hear this. Tune in now and we're going to help you sound smarter when talking with your friends. 